people have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women too that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us too as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yos, and we're your hosts. I, I don't remember a single press conference I've ever seen which changed so many people's um, moods and emotional states in an instant like that before. Today we're going to tell a story about a case that changed the city and policing in the process. And in doing so, hopefully shed new light on a tale that people think they know, but perhaps don't truly understand. We will explore a facet of the history of law enforcement in Baltimore that brought worldwide attention, but is still not truly understood. It is an event that changed everything, and we will delve into it deeply. In a series of four podcasts we're calling The Mosby Effect. All this coming up on Truth and Reconciliation. of our comprehensive, thorough, and independent investigation, coupled with the medical examiner's determination that Mr. Gray's death was a homicide, which we received today, has led us to believe that we have probable cause to file criminal charges. That was Baltimore State's attorney Marilyn Mosby announcing indictments against six officers in the death of Freddie Gray. By now, most of the world knows the story. Freddie Gray died in the back of a van from a traumatic injury to his spine. He was placed there after being shackled from head to toe after a police officer chased him through the housing project known as Gilmore Homes. Officers justified the chase because Gray made eye contact. After Gray died, the city erupted. Anger from decades of aggressive policing boiled over. Sean, can you give us a sense of what it was like the two weeks after Freddie Gray died? It was, I think it was almost like this building pressure um, leading up to his funeral on April 27th. Um, There was a series of protests that happened around the city. And then the one that happened down at Camden Yards was the one that I think it, 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 it was a true measure of just, well, prior to the actual uprising on the 27th uh, and what happened at Mondominant and what happened at Penn uh, North, that was the true, in my mind, the true barometer of how angry black people were in Baltimore. And then once his, fun- once his funeral happened, um, everything just uh, exploded. After decades of what we had experienced, had, what mostly poor, mostly black communities had experienced at the hands of police, and especially 
what had transpired during the O'Malley years and zero tolerance mm-hmm. policing. Um, this was the moment. This was the spark. And when the indictments were announced, the backlash was swift. The police union attacked. To continue this travesty is an insult to the taxpaying citizens of Baltimore who, at the end of the day, bear the full burden of the enormous costs of these trials that have no merit and continue to divide our city. The media depicted the indictment as a rush to judgment. Mosby was under siege, and eventually all the officers were acquitted or their charges were dropped. The narrative was that the indictment was a failure. But is that true? Was the prosecution rushed? And more importantly, what most critics seem to miss, what was the unseen significance of the indictment? And what effect did that single act have on the process of holding police accountable in this city? And most importantly, how did it change Baltimore, a city for all intents and purposes controlled by the police? And even more disturbing, what if it never happened at all? If it had not happened, um, I, I just think that I think that by her indicting those police officers, as difficult as, as, as it has been in the, the subsequent three years, um, the changes that are happening within the, depart- the department, would, they would, we would have never gotten to the root of the gun trace task force, probably. We wouldn't have gotten to the root of a lot of the sh- stuff that has happened in this department that was happening. We would have never been able to begin the process of breaking up the corruption that is at the foundation of the Baltimore Police Department. And, and I think that Marilyn Mosby's charging the, the grand jury's indictment of those six officers was the first domino that led to these changes that we're seeing. These are the questions we are going to explore. And to do so, we are going to go back in time, before Freddie Gray and Marilyn Mosby. Before the Justice Department report and the consent decree. Back to when prosecuting a police officer just didn't happen. When the political and cultural landscape that defines law enforcement was totally different, a fact that is often forgotten. All that coming up on Truth and Reconciliation. One element completely lacking from the critics of Mosby's decision to indict the six officers is history. That is, the history of attempts to hold police accountable for deaths caused by their actions in the past. Sean, how hard was it to charge and prosecute officers 10 years ago? Uh, it was nearly impossible. And, and that goes back when you talk about history. Go back to the police strike in the 1970s when literally police officers walked off. They, they got out of their cars left the cars in the middle of the street, and walked off the job. It scared the hell out of Baltimore. It scared the hell out of the politicians. It scared the hell out of the, out of the, out of the people. And right after that, the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights takes place. It's implemented. The toughest in the nation, the first in the nation, and the toughest still. Um, so, yeah, indicting a cop, charging a cop, prosecuting a cop was nearly impossible before Marilyn Mosby came on the scene. It was 10 years ago when myself and my colleague, Luke Broadwater, got a call in the newsroom of the now-defunct Baltimore Examiner. Police had shot a man in North Baltimore, and he was dead. 
But of course, this was a common occurrence that usually garnered little attention at the time. Uh, the, the rate of police-involved shootings has gone down considerably um, over time, and that has to do with the fact that there are actually much fewer police interactions modern day than there were under the height of the O'Malley administration when, as we all know, one out of every six Baltimoreans was arrested. But this shooting seemed different, although it too was largely ignored. Yeah, we rushed out of the newsroom and we got up to that uh, Northeast Baltimore shopping center and we started interviewing witnesses. Right away it became apparent that this was going to be a problematic case for the police department. The victim's name was Edward Lamont Hunt, a 26-year-old father, a community college student, and a Baltimore resident, one of many young black men fighting the odds, until he encountered a cop named Tommy Sanders in a North Baltimore parking lot. When there's a shooting, uh, generally, um, you want to, for the police officer, from their point of view, uh, they're going to want to see that there was an armed suspect, that there was some sort of threat or danger to the officer's life. And the more we were hearing from uh, from witnesses was that just wasn't the case, that the man, uh, Edward Lamont Hunt, who was fatally shot in the back, was not only unarmed, but he had been searched. He was not approaching the officer, but in fact, going the other way from the officer. And so this immediately cried out to us that this was something we needed to dig deeply into. After 10 minutes of being frisked, Hunt became frustrated with the search and started to walk away. Dwight Pettit, his attorney, remembers. Mr. Hunt basically said, enough is enough. And said, you know, the hell with you, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And began to walk away. Officer Saunders, I think at the time that was his name, uh, Tom, Tom Saunders, uh, ran up behind him, uh, yelling uh, certain commands in which... Uh, um, were not followed by Mr. Hunt because there was no reason he had submitted to searches twice. And from that point, uh, uh, Officer Saunders fired three shots, as I understand it, two hitting uh, Mr. Hunt in the back. So, uh, Sean, does it surprise you that a cop could shoot some a, a man who was walking away after being frisked? Almost nothing surprised me because they operated with impunity. And they operated with impunity in our city because so many people were fearful. The The political establishment said the only way we can protect you is to beef up law enforcement more police more police more police um and and out of fear people were like okay that's the way it has to be that has to be the answer any scenario can be crafted by this or at least in the past any scenario could be crafted to favor the police department and police officers there's the there's the old playbook the furtive movements. He went for his dip. Mm-hmm. He made the. I mean, he, I mean, it's it's the script they've they've used the same script for decades. So no, to answer the question, no, there's no there's no there's no scenario that police can't craft to their advantage. It seems like. As Huntley dying, the officer who shot him waved off the nurse who wanted to administer CPR. The evidence was overwhelming. Hunt was clearly shot in the back. Witnesses watched Sanders pat him down for at least 10 minutes. Um, I remember there was a report the next day in what the police department said that he had been found with marijuana on him. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I think you and I talked to each other, and I said, since when can you hurt somebody by throwing marijuana at them? <laughs> and so we, you know, we initially, we immediately started to question that, and we wrote a series of articles, and then... Um, I believe through some of our uh, sourcing in the police department, we learned more and more about the case. And we learned that, in fact, the uh, office, the gentleman, Edward Lamont Hunt, had been uh, frisked and searched 
um, pretty uh, comprehensively by the officer before he he uh, ran away. Even though similar cases had been ignored before, Sanders was charged with manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. So that was taken to a grand jury and it was indicted. And I haven't seen a police officer be indicted uh, for a shooting since then, or um, with the exception of Cagle, um, or or before that. So in my time, and Cagle com- was a guy shooting the shooting guy who came out of the um, the convenience store and he shot him when he was on. The that ground. was the guy who was on the ground. Yeah, had already been. Uh, I think arrested basically, right, right, and the, right. the cop was standing over him and shot him an extra time. Right, right. So, so that yeah, you're right. That was the only one. But I think it was the state's attorney Jessamy at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she took uh, Mr. Sanders to trial. Unlike Freddie Gray, there was very little public outcry, even though police killed more people ten years ago than today. So, Sean, you you covered a lot. There were a lot of police shootings back then, right? Right. Um, like 26 in one year. Well. Police shootings and just general brutality, um, but again, the, the the it was when fear is when fear is at the root of decisions, whether they be political, social, cultural, um, it's never a good outcome. And 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 I think that that ultimately um, is what uh, fueled all these police shootings. I mean, not just the people were afraid, but cops were afraid. I mean, I, the, when we think about the atmosphere back. I mean, you, we, you've got it. All of this stuff is connected. If you go back to the 80s and the crack epidemic in Baltimore City and how that imploded our city, that leads into mass incarceration with Bill Clinton in the 90s. That leads into the zero tolerance policing. All of that stuff is connected. It's not in a silo. It's not kind of, uh, you know, by itself. And it creates a, an, a climate of hostility, fear um, that is palpable it is it is it is volatile and um we see the re- we've seen the result as a reporter working with luke i remember there was a small protest at a shopping center where hunt was shot it was maybe 20 or 30 people but it was interesting halfway through a man appeared he was white clean cut and wearing a plaid jacket i remember stephen discussing it with me that when he would attend protests older clean cut white guys would attend and after a while i started to realize there were cops undercover watching. Sean, does it surprise you that they would be stalking people out in the community? No. I mean, it would, what surprises me is that they would be so stupid as to dress the way they were dressing and think that they wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb and think nobody would be on to them, like the cat in the corner kind of sitting around. I mean, I don't, you know, that is the thing that surprises me more than anything else, is they thought that somehow they were going to be able to uh, sit incognito incognito. And so now with little attention or fanfare, Tommy Sanders would face trial in 2010 for the killing of Edward Lamont Hunt. And what happened revealed some unspoken truths about the process of holding cops accountable in Baltimore. But how the trial unfolded surprised everyone and also sent a cautionary message to prosecutors seeking to charge police. To say that the shooting is justified in that case leads me to believe that almost any shooting would be justified in the eyes of that jury. All that coming up in the next episode of Truth and Reconciliation. What did I do? Thanks for joining us in our four-part series, The Mosby Effect, 
on the real story about the indictments of six Baltimore police officers after the death of Freddie Gray. We'd like to take our guests. Civil rights attorney Dwight Pettit and Baltimore Sun reporter Luke Broadwater. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by myself, Taya Graham, Sean Yost for Ace Spectrum Productions. Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves. And it's edited by Stephen Janis. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and check back for more episodes. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Sean Yost. And I'm Taya Graham. Thank you for joining us on Truth and Reconciliation. <laughs>